It's time. Tax the rich, feed the poor, tell there are no rich no more. Okay, well, Roger's with us. Um, Roger's with us, but he's muted. Rog, you're muted. In uh, I'm trying to. I'm trying to pedal as hard as I can. Okay. <laughs> there you go. All right. I didn't realize it was muted. We had to reset. There's all kinds of stuff going on before the program today. Uh, so we try and change the world, too, there, Alvin, a little at a time. And uh, we'll do uh, – so we will endeavor to do so again today. Uh, of course, being a Friday, and uh, that means Brent Winters, if he's going to join us, and I believe he is. I exchanged a message with him this morning. Uh, we'll pop in here in a second if he's not here already. And uh, we might even have a mystery uh, a mystery visitor today. We'll see. Really? Abdul, Abdul in the night visitors. We'll see. Uh, and, of course, today is the 1st of March, the 1st of the month of March. March will be a stem winder, folks. Ride it on a rock, bury it, okay? Um, so, Roger Sales, Brent Winters, Radio Ranch here, and we're on a list of uh, different platforms. And Paul, if he doesn't go into a coughing fit, can probably cover all those. He can probably cover them even if he does go into a coughing fit, but we'll hope he doesn't. So, Paul, is that something you just sucked down wrong or, or swallowed wrong no, or what? No, no. I've been I've been feeling lousy since. Um, um, uh, I've been feeling lousy since Wednesday. Wednesday and, Ooh, and yesterday. I'm sure sorry to hear that. And getting apologize. Um, yeah. Well, Paul English says that we don't appear to be connected to. Uh, um, uh, it appears that we don't we're not um we're not on top of our game today i think here let's see if we can get it together yeah are we not uh, okay. connected to Eurofolk or speak free we're not connected to speak free and um um paul can uh can reset the server that'll be fine so right. i'll uh, i'll pop a message to him okay well, uh, sure, sir, yes, sorry you're feeling bad yeah, Is well, it? I went to the store. I went to the store, and and I went to a drugstore. And you know, there's sick people. Um, yes, that, they congregate. They there. congregate. Yeah, they congregate there. Uh huh. Uh, yes, exactly. <coughs> Excuse me. All right. So. Okay. Well, sir, sorry to hear that. We're on Eurofolkradio.com. Yes. We're on um, uh, radio.globalvoiceradio.net. We're on 106.9 WBOU-FM in Chicago for the first hour of today's program. We're on speakfreeradio.com. We're also on homenetwork.tv and freedomnation.tv. We're also on TV and streamlife.tube. Now I'm going to try and get through this. Um, new students um, or people looking for resources associated with the program, please go to the Matrix 
Docs.com. You can find links for new students. Uh, you can find uh, excellent interviews, downloadable resources, books, to, uh, links to per, to acquire uh, pertinent books, um, and just all kinds of fun stuff, as well as the links to either join us using free conference call or Zoom and actually be on the show. We've got room for, um, well, about 1,500 of you. So I'm hoping that you don't all show up at the same time. Uh, good morning, Raj. Boy, let's hope they don't all have questions at the same time. Yikes. Uh, good morning, Paul. I'm sorry you're feeling bad. I just got finished with that for about a, three or four weeks of not like you're going through, but my own, so I can uh, empathize and sympathize with you, and we hope you get better. we got some pretty good alternative health folks on here. Maybe they can give you some suggestions if we get a chance to talk about it. sounds like a bad cold or something. Is that what it feels like? Yeah, it's it's um, um, sinus sinus infection, um, headache, um, lungs full of junk. It's just oh. you know, basically, oh. if I could, yeah. uh, if I could trade in the upper half of my body for like a newer model, yeah, um, you'd be better. I'd be just fine. Okay. Well, sure. Sorry to hear that. And we'll work its way through there. Maybe some folks can offer some suggestions. Uh, let's see. I don't see Francine up there. That's pretty Francine's unusual. There. Oh, she's there. It's not her picture. It's just, okay. It's just her, her name there. Okay. Good. Well, morning, Francine. Is, uh, is Mr. Winters, is Mr. Yes. Winters with us? He's, he is? he's there right there. I see him. Well, I don't hey, see him. Brown. I see his name. Right. Good morning, Brent. Oh, there's there's Miss Francine's pretty picture there, the red hair. Hey, Brent, how you doing? Okay. Sounds to me like right. Paul's got what they call around home. He's got what they call around home the crud. Yeah, the croup or something. Yeah. The oh, crud. crud. Yeah. Crud. Yeah, crud. Well, I'm sure sorry. Kilo Romeo um, Union Delta, I guess. Yeah. Well, crud. now. In Spanish, we, you would be have, uh, having a refrio. However, if you get the flu, now this is very appropriate here in the language. If you get the flu, they call it el gripe. Now, isn't that a accurate description for the flu where your bones hurt and it's something just like it grabbed you? El gripe. So la, anyway, la, hopefully yeah. it's a refrio. Is that right? Yeah, La Gripa, La Gripe, something like that. It, in other words, it grabs you, man, and uh, we hope you don't move over into that side of the ledger, Paul. Hopefully it'll stay it gra- with the it grabs you and it, it grabs you and it don't let go. Now, uh, yeah. let me ask you a question real quick. Are you getting, like, any kind of an echo or a talk back from me when you talk? No. Okay, no, good. Sounds fine. Um, sounds well, just fine. I had that. I had the crash and, and the whole... <laughs> <laughs> reconfiguration of half my system so i'm i'm trying some new settings so i just wanted yeah. to make sure everything was okay i was uh, i was watching uh, the infowars stuff yesterday and they had uh, he's a retired green beret guy on brent and he, and he hangs around the capitol all the time and hassles people at all the senate and house meetings and stuff you know in a positive way from our viewpoint and yesterday they had lloyd austin up and they grilled him in one of those house committees. And boy, is that guy crooked. Yeah, they're going to have to screw him in. Uh, but that's going to continue to grow on the fact that they mandated the uh, jab for the service members. And 8,600 
officers or, or good soldiers or Navy people left and, and it was totally unconstitutional and all that's coming to a head. But what was interesting was, and I can't remember the guy's name. He's got an unusual name. Uh, yesterday was his birthday. So he really was a guy that was born on the, on the 29th of February. So he said, I'm 12 years old this year. <laughs> 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 pretty funny uh so boy there's a bunch of stuff happening what's going on in your world mr winters that you'd like to talk about here today since you're with us on fridays take oh, your I, valuable I, time to spend with us oh you're very kind roger everybody's time is valuable i know well, mine is too but everybody else is and i consider it a, a privilege an opportunity and a privilege to be here and talk and i also consider it uh, not my doing for a, re- a lot of reasons number one you're the one that invited me to do it and then pushed me to do it a long time ago and then uh, even beyond that uh, Paul English is the one that put the platform together and he called me and he wanted to know who I was and talk to me and see if it was he wanted to allow such things and he's been kind enough to allow me to come on there was a time I suppose when he Maybe he still does. I Here I am on here talking. I know I'm talking. I don't know who I'm talking to. I don't really know how I got here except to know you, and I know something about him. And it's a privilege. If I don't, if I don't unload what I have, I probably would burst. So it's a good thing I have mm-hmm. a place to come and talk. And this, this mm-hmm. audience here is different than the, the listeners that listen to me on the radio five days a week and then listen to me on Patriot Soapbox on two days a week. Um, this crowd is a different crowd. All crowds are different, but we're talking to people all over the world. And so if you cast a net wide enough, even if you you couldn't get a hearing locally, and I probably couldn't that much, I never have, well, then uh, you can get a few listeners. You know, Roger, I've been, <clears throat> I started speaking publicly a number of decades ago, and I've never drawn a crowd. Uh, matter of fact, I've been thrown out of quite a few places. I heard Paul. <laughs> I've been, as I get older, you just like to tell your story. I've been dismissed from uh, uh, six. I counted the other day six churches that I worked in was a part of, um, and not to mention being dismissed and. From other gatherings, of course, in the political scene, I was blackballed. And I don't think I'm that bad a guy. But then again, you know, if you're telling the truth and you say, Brent, everybody says they're telling the truth. Yeah, but not everybody is saying, here's what the Bible says. Not everybody's saying that. And even the ones that teach the Bible, it's been my, my studied opinion. And I'm just stating the facts as an older guy. An older guy that's been doing this for years, there are very few people that really try to say what the Bible says. And the reason they don't do it is because if they did do it, they wouldn't, uh, they'd starve to death or be living in a cardboard box or both. And that's not an exaggeration. The Bible says that. The Bible says, woe unto you when everybody likes you. Woe unto you when you're popular. You see a popular preacher? I suggest you scrutinize it very closely. Some of the ones that are very popular, and I've listened to them for years, Bible teachers and preachers, when you uh, scrutinize them very closely and just say, if you ever get to the point, you can say, well, I know what the Bible says about that, and that ain't what he's saying. Well, you you find out uh, as time goes along, you're more and more and more. Uh, it's just you and your God. 
That's what it is. And that's all it will ever be. It never was intended to be anything else. And that's the beauty of being of the Christian life, as we call it. You're under orders. You have direction. You're not floundering about like a soldier without orders. A soldier without orders isn't a soldier. The only reason we say he's a soldier or a sailor is because he has orders. And those of us that are out here in the world doing what we do, we have orders. Most of us are floundering about like goofuses and doofuses. We think we know what's right, and we just want to be good moral people, and that has nothing to do with it. God is down to earth more than that. If you think morality is what this is about, it's not. It's not about morality. Oh, that comes along as a tag-along. I get that, but that's not the foundation. Not at all. Decent lives don't come from trying to live decent lives. I was reading recently about a fellow named Burroughs, decent man, very decent man. He ended up working for a rancher in Texas. He was from Alabama and uh, he worked hard and he saved his pennies. He got his own little spread. He began to raise a few cattle and farm a little cotton probably. And then he, he was up north in Fort Worth near Montague County. And then he uh, got married and had a couple of children and everything was going great. And then his wife got the yellow fever and she passed on. And then he didn't know what to do with his girls. He took them back to his folks in Alabama. And then he went back to trying to cowboy for some other outfits. It wasn't long that he was robbing trains. Uh-huh. Yeah, robbing trains. I'll tell you what. The more you read history, the more you read the Bible, and he did that the rest of his life until he was shot dead uh, at age 35. An outlaw of outlaws killed several men. Uh, uh, the more you read history, the, if you're honest with yourself, the more you conclude is that we are a people with serious problems. And we're all on the verge of madness if we were really evaluate our situation. And the only force... The only, it's not a force, the only thing, the only power um, that can control us is the spirit of God, of the God, the maker of heaven and earth. There is no other power. Any false God will just make it worse, won't make it better. I talked to a fellow last night, told me, oh, I was raised in the Swedish Reformed Church, and but I know all about Buddha, and I grew grew up with a lot of Jews, and he said, I... I have all that, and I think I'm good. That's what he told me. I just shook my head to myself and said, if I knew this fellow well enough and the social circumstances allowed it, I'd tell him what I needed to tell him, but I didn't think it was appropriate at that point to start a fight in somebody else's house, and that's what I would have <laughs> Yeah. It's like Paul said one time, Paul English. <laughs> I hope Paul comes on today. He said... Uh, He'd, he'd go to a get-together at somebody's house, and he'd go in the kitchen. And, of course, people don't gather in the living room. Anybody stops to think about it, realize people will always gather where the food is. And most times, if you go to somebody's house, you'll end up in the kitchen if that's where the food is. If there's room, and you'll sit around or stand around in there, and that way you can reach and grab what you need. Well, he said he'd go into a kitchen and start saying what he believes, which is no no revolutionary thing really you know, i've heard some of his talking and there are things that i probably wouldn't think were something i'd want to major in but at the same time it's not like he's trying to to destroy the world 
But uh, he said he can clear a kitchen out with just two or three sentences and no time flat. <laughs> He's right. Just being, just being himself, you know, that's all. Not trying to start any trouble, just being yourself. <laughs> well, it gets that way. But, you know, there's something beautiful, Roger, about a man. You know, people say, oh, you're an independent thinker. And I know I'm not. I'm doing all I can, all I can to think God's thoughts after him. As the book says, think his thoughts after him. And the only way to do that is to get his thoughts, his sentences, into your noggin, into your brain, into mental sod, the word of God. And if you get it in there, you will think God's thoughts after him. In other words, um, after he does, you'll be thinking the same thing. And uh, you'll be putting on the mind of God, as the New Testament then puts it, the same thing, the mind of Christ. And if you do that, then you're not an independent thinker. People say, well, he's marching to the beat of his own drum. No, no, I'm not. I'm just thinking God's thoughts after him. And you don't know what those are. And you think that I'm a weirdo. That's what you think. And you want to get away from me. Besides uh, the presence of somebody who has that as their goal in life will make others feel exceedingly guilty. And that's really the reason why they want to get rid of him. He's making me feel bad. And I'm not even trying to make him feel bad. And I can't tell you how many people, how many people think that about me. Don't tell me. I've been at it for decades. It's nothing new. So that doesn't bother me if somebody's rejected. Um, and matter of fact, the Bible says that we are the remnant, which means that's a fancy Latin word that means leftovers. We're what's left over after the world has captured everybody else and is sending them down the broad street to hell. We're the ones that are left over. But I don't know why all that came to mind, Roger, but I was thinking about well, it last night because I talked to that fella and you brought it up, I guess. Well, let me just tell you, that's a conclusion I came to many years ago on us being the remnant. It's the only thing that fits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, of course, the leftovers, to be, use the English word, are powerful, much more powerful than anyone else. They're in, indestructible, um, and they're the ones that are committed to they're, they're the ones that are holding things together and people trying to destroy them. That's the way it works. So the evil empire and the useful idiots thereof are trying to destroy those that want to think God's thoughts after him, and they're committed to that truth. And when I say that truth, I'm not talking about any goofy-ass religion. I mean, let's, let's talk ugly about it. That's what it is. They're, all religions, all religions, except one, are nothing but profound and evil silliness. And there's only one that's true. And that's the one that says, no man comes to the Father but by me. That's Jesus Christ. There isn't anything else. And anyone who says otherwise is a damnable liar from hell. And there's a lot of them out there thinking they're good people, thinking they're good religious people, thinking there's any way to get there. This fellow last night that told me about Buddhism. Well, I've, I've looked into Buddhism uh, pretty pretty lively. And I said, well, I want to get away from this guy. He's He's, uh, he's got evil in his soul. I don't want to be around him. I hope you think the same thing, friends, if you're listening. Well, I know there are a lot of people listening that are contrary to what I'm saying, but um, you're living a dangerous life, and you're the problem, not the solution. And I have no visions of grandeur that I'm going to change anything. I made a lecture last night, Roger, about banking. That's how this all happened. I was invited oh. to deliver a lecture about banking, and I thought, oh, I could say a lot, and I... I remember I started, this is on my mind, so I suppose we'll talk about it. I started by saying what I know about banking, I learned from banks having uh, stiff-armed me and from 
banks having stolen stolen millions of dollars from my clients. And uh, not only that, from uh, having cross-examined, I think I told up, I could remember, about 18 hours of cross-examination of bank executives. Now, in those cases where I cross-examined those bank executives, I was not under any illusion that I was going to win these cases. Was I right? Yes. Was the law on my side? Yes. Was truth on my side? Yes. Did I think I was going to win? No, I didn't think I was going to win. But I took the case ultimately because I said, this is my opportunity, Roger, to cross-examine bank executives. And maybe I can find out some more real down deep of what, what's going on. And then I took on another case against a large uh, an international bank, not to mention the name. But uh, I argued that case in the appellate courts. I didn't, a state appellate court, one of the, one of the state appellate courts, I didn't didn't try that case. I did for, I was part of the council for a while, but then we got a, another person in there that knew banking law. Well, that didn't help. You find out there is no banking law. It's like, uh, well, the tax law, what, what tax law? I didn't know there was any tax law. As far as I know, you just, you better do what the bureaucrat says or they'll send yeah. you the position. That's all it amounts to. It's that kind of a bureaucracy, <laughs> that kind of arrangement when it comes to law. Don't think, don't get caught up in the details, trying to understand it. Who was the name of that fellow that, he was the tax guru and he was going to take the tax code and show that you don't have to pay income tax. And, and I, I listened to him and I'm not against him. And I'm just saying that's, that's a waste of time. Who cares what they want to do to quote Roger sales. Erwin Schiff, Erwin Schiff. Well, no, that was one of them, but there was another one. There was another one and he was really calculated and smart guy, but he went to federal Uh prison, you know, Uh Uh, he just went through the tax code and showed how you don't, have an obligation to file. Well, does that make any difference? Let's say the tax code says you do have an obligation to file. Mm, Whether it, it does, does. If it doesn't say it, it doesn't make any difference. What they want to do, they want to do to quote Roger Sales is they want to kick your can and take your money. And they don't care how they do it either. You know, whether they do it by force, threat of force, intimidation, fraud, um, horn swoggling you, they don't care. They just want your blasted money. So don't get to thinking there's anything complicated about this. It's real personal. If you have a tax problem, what you need is a, a tax council that will smooth the IRS man. And that's not easy to do, by the way. That's really hard. You've got to be able to put up with these fellows, and that's not easy either. Well, I'm, where was I going with this? Roger, you started to say something. I don't know, but I, I, I'll, I'll tell you a story I heard somebody telling on, on one of these shows a while back. said he was uh, one of the big IRS guys in California back in the mid-50s. You know, they formed the IRS in 51, okay, with a treasury order, oh. treasury order 51, I believe. So he was there in California in the mid-50s, and he was retiring, and, uh, and he, he told somebody, he says, Buddy, the folks they got coming to take my place are bad people. So he even knew as that transition took place what was coming just by the people that were replacing him. Mm-hmm. And they don't they don't care if you like them or not. No, they want to try to buff up their image just so they can get more money. People fool people into thinking that they're all for them. But they're which is part of the evil empire and how do you get money out of people? And you can't plan for the future because again, you have to ask the bureaucrat. I work for a lawyer in, out West and he was counsel to uh, this before. Well, this a long time ago. Uh, he was counsel to Gunsight. At that time, Gunsight was the only reputable marksmanship school in America. Uh-huh. You know, marksmanship, well, the NRA came along well, back in the 1800s, and the idea was to teach 
marksmanship and uh, gun safety. And that was a, a nice thing, of course. But other than that, there wasn't anybody teaching that stuff because Americans were so well armed and always have been that they prided themselves on having learned how to shoot themselves. You just learn mm-hmm. marksmanship yourself. And that's the way it was where I came from. And now every boy, he had a 22 caliber bolt action rifle, if not something else. And he was trying to make a a boy's bounty and a boy's fortune on the bounty of groundhogs. You know, you take the tails into the courthouse, they give you 50 cents a tail. That was quite a, you could buy five bottles of pop on, on uh, 50 cents, Roger, back then, or, yeah. or 10, no, 20, no, five. Yeah. Or you could buy, um, uh, I'll see five and a 50, 10, you could buy 10 candy bars, right? Mm-hmm, right. And so that's a lot of money. And boys would learn how to shoot. They'd learn yeah. patience. They'd take the rifles. They knew where the groundhog hole was, and they would wait for hours. They, well, I did it too, wait for hours and hours and hours. No scopes, of course, just drawing a bead on a groundhog from a distance that you thought he wouldn't see you. And then when he'd pop his head about out, out the hole, and you'd pop him. And then you want to make sure he didn't crawl back down in the hole, though. See, that was the, the problem with that. If you if you popped him and it didn't kill him right away, he, he'd scurry back down the hole, and then right. he'd him out so right yeah it was roger i'm uh, was there something you were going to say i didn't know i'm agreeing with you i can oh, see that oh, in my yeah. mind doing that stuff yeah groundhogs were thick as flies and it's open season on them they were eating all the crops and so then the then the coyotes moved in well if the coyotes could have taken the tails to the courthouse they'd have been ultra wealthy because they plumb wiped them out i mean there weren't any around for years the coyotes then took over and started killing the sheep and the livestock and then you got another problem see right and no right. matter what you got a problem but don't think one problem solved is going to make another one that might be worse that's what happened with the coyotes and the timber wolves then they moved in and then they were killing the bigger livestock and uh it got worse from there but at any rate it's always a fight and if you think there's some way you're going to get out of the fight uh, you're not if you're living life if you're doing what's right so what a fellow needs to do is enjoy the battle and find safety in the battle. There is no other place for safety, my friends, but in the battle. And the only way to get into the battle is if um, God himself births you from above. And then you'll, your eyes will open and you'll begin to see what it is and what it's supposed to be. And you'll be in the battle and you'll want to fight it. It doesn't mean you fight it stupid. Now, most most patriots are fighting the battle uh, real stupid, real stupid. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've done that myself. I've tried everything, Roger, Pertinier. Like, uh, who was it John, John Wayne set up and tried everything except keeping school? Well, I've, de- I've even done that. So I guess I got one up on him. I've, I've uh, taught school some a long time ago, but I didn't like that either because the system, you get in the system, you're in the evil empire when you're in the public school system. There's no question yes. about that. But my granddad was a school teacher and he's one of little, the little one room schoolhouses scattered around the country here. And oh, he had a pretty good time of it, 27 years of it. But when they started to consolidate, uh, started in the late 50s to bring the schools into town, he fought with them about it. Then they wanted to have school buses. He didn't like that idea, he thought that was a waste of money. A lot of things have happened, but I wanted to be, I said, well, grandpa was a school teacher. Maybe I'll, I'll try it. So I tried it and I found out and I'm like him, he didn't want to be any part of it. That's why he quit. And he went to farming full time. Well, Roger, what's new on your end down to South well, America? Well, 
I was just going to say that I, I, I've been down those same paths, and uh, my teaching experience, fortunately, was not in the public schools. It was in a trade school, and yeah. it was a different experience. And, I mean, I'd walk out of there some days. It was at the Art Institute of Atlanta. They had a music curriculum, and I taught yeah. some of the things I did in the music business as, yeah. as a professional, you know. And I'd walk out of there some days and go get in my car, and I'd go, I can't believe they pay me to do this. <laughs> you like this? I, I enjoyed it so much, really. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, that's transferred over to this is one of the reasons I enjoy okay. doing this. Teaching has got to be one of the most single fulfilling things I've ever done in my life. doesn't matter what they pay you for. It's just personally fulfilling. Uh, not too much happening down here. Everything's pretty copacetic. Uh, it's so calm and uh, weather's beautiful and uh, food's good. And, uh, you know, just enjoying being here in Ecuador. And I see and hear about all the things that are happening up there and i'm very sorry that that's going uh forward like it is in my country it breaks my heart and i try and do something about it as best i can and uh I, I we got 40 miles of bad road up ahead of us i can tell you that well roger your experience is much like our our first fathers here in america because the the the, the puritans the english puritans when they came to america they weren't trying to flee flee England as much as they were trying to get to a place where they could rule England without having really? to be there. They found out they couldn't win as long as they were there. They were in a, a bloody, bloody struggle at that time. Bloody. And a lot of the people that came to America then went back to serve in Cromwell's army. The chief chaplain of Cromwell's, Cromwell's army was a New Englander. Uh, really? So their, their idea was to rule England, to do what they could for England from here. They were English. Well. And they didn't want to be anything else. Go ahead. Well, it's very parallel to what I'm doing. I, yeah. you know, I mean, I saw them railroad my teachers on a bunch of bogus stuff and send them to federal prison for, yeah. you know, Glenn nine and a half years, John six on just bogus trumped up charges. And I couldn't get anybody to listen to me, but I knew that it happened to them. And I knew how strong and powerful this information was. And I thought I can probably do a more effective job of spreading it if I'm out of the country than I am in the country. That was literally part of my consciousness on this decision. There were other elements, too. You know, I'd always I was raised in the Air Force. I think you know that, Brent. And uh, my every officer has a overseas assignment. And um, all of my friends, as I was growing up, they'd all been to Germany and Turkey and Spain and Japan and all these cool places. And our overseas assignment was Alaska, which wasn't too overseas. It was cool. I enjoyed it. But it wasn't like a different culture. Uh, it may be in some ways, but not it's still the same uh, culture, basically. And so that was a void in my life. I'd always thought about that. And several of those elements came together at the same time. And then Argentina popped up. I had a friend from the record business who owned land down there, been trying to get me to go down. And so that was the decision. Boy, I'll tell you what, man, that new president they've got down there, he's calling a, a, a meeting later this year of all the South American countries. Uh, Jack sent me something on this the other day so that they can all get together and support, uh, Ukraine, Israel, and the U.S. I mean, this guy he can't claims to be like a Trump guy. He's not. He's a sellout. He's a, yeah. he's a closet Zionist. Okay. Isn't that what we've got, uh, Speaker of the House? 
now? Yeah, well, we'll find out, I guess, okay. was if he brings that uh, financing bill over in front of the House, we'll find out how much pressure they can put on him. Oh, I know how much pressure they can put on him. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, I experienced yeah. experience speaks. Uh, um, they're the most powerful group in uh, Washington, D.C., and therefore in the country when it comes yep. to controlling government. Yeah. And they, their money is bagged up here in America, by the way, and taken over there. Of course, of course. All over here, bag up all, money. And what's that? All of our, all of our. What what they're doing? You know, this is all goes back to economics, and it comes back to this guy from Argentina a little bit. He was a Austrian economics professor. Now, Brent, I'm no you. You know the difference a little bit, I'm sure. In Austrian economics and Keynesian economics, they're opposites. And uh, he was supposedly an Austrian economics professor before he started running for, well, now he's in there and he kicks the central bank out of Argentina and brings in the Federal Reserve and they want to put him on the dollar. When he goes to the U.S., the first place he goes is uh, Rabbi Schneerson's grave. He wants to go to Europe, uh, to Israel and study the Torah and the Talmud. I mean, this is the Austrian economics professor? I don't think so. Yeah, see, this is all screwy, isn't it, Roger? Yeah, I mean, just that right there. If you can't see what a fraud he is right there, then you, you don't know too much about what we just yeah. talked about. Yeah, yeah. See, that's that's dancing with devils. Yep. You can't get away with it. And that's what politics is by definition, by the way. There is no way anybody is going to be able to stay in office unless, unless they dance with the devil. That means false religion. False religion because there isn't a government on the face of the, of the place we call earth that does not rest upon law. And there's not a law that people say is a law that doesn't come from what they claim to be a lawgiver, a God, a final arbiter of right and wrong. It's always the same. You better pick your lawgiver, my friends, and better get the right one. There's only one true lawgiver. Now, here's yeah. a funny thing that a funny, it's odd were you going to say something, Roger? No, I'm just agreeing with you, Brent. Go on. Oh, I was hoping I was hoping I'd jabber long enough and jack my jaws long enough that Paul would pop in, Paul English, because I'd ask him if he's would. He said, "Well, I'll try to," and uh, he might, he might not. Maybe he'll wait till next week. But if he does, he usually he usually lets about an hour go along before okay. he pops in. He likes to for us to get whatever. I think I'm just sup- supposing here. Well, but we, I, we hope we see him. I love it when Paul drops by. So does everybody else. He's such a charming guy. I love his accent. Love his perspective. And uh, just got a man crush on him, you know. I, I told him, I said, uh, you know, I said, Paul, even if people like to listen to me, at some point they got to get tired of me. And if you give, give them a break, they'd appreciate it. <laughs> so maybe he will. Well, in the meantime, there's plenty to say. But yeah, things are things are going haywire. But we're not going to change any of this, right? That's what I told these folk last night at this little lecture we did on banking. I I told how terrible all it was and how how uh, vicious bankers were and my experiences and and uh, how they convince you that they aren't. But boy, you threaten their money for a second or their their position and uh, they bare their teeth and here they come. Well. And usury, see, is at the bottom of it all. It's against sure, the law. Of course. You know, it's, funny. It, it's funny you would do that because we covered the banking and structure and how the whole monetary system works in, in some depth this week, two days. Oh, yeah. yeah, so we talked about that this week, too. So it's oh. fresh on, uh, on the listeners' minds. Well, the, the, 
the the other thing we talked about that really the lecture was supposed to be about gold and silver and that's where i started but i i got into talking about money because of course the antithesis to gold and silver is usury and the banking Mm -hmm. system and they hate it and they're scared to death the, the banksters are scared to death when folks are interested in real money um the gold is money silver is money why mm-hmm. because god says so that's why and there's a lot of other reason when you look into it you see why god says so but every time you see the word money in the bible in the older testament which is about 70 percent of it every time you see the word money uh it's a tran- it's not a translation of the hebrew word it's a rendering and it's not what the hebrew word means uh, they they translate money, but the Hebrew word in every case, you say, how do you know, Brent? Because I traced every occurrence of the word just to check it out, and there's a lot. But I speak, I'm just giving testimony, as I like to say to people, what I found. Um, the Hebrew word is kisef. Kisef. Hmm. It means silver. And every time you see the word money in God's book, it means silver. Uh, so just substitute silver. Why? Because only silver is the proper, proper money, a negotiable paper, you know, bonds and bank notes and promissory notes and personal checks and even written contracts. Any writing that is evidence uh, in court of a uh, right in property, money or otherwise, or payment or whatever, is a negotiable, what we call negotiable paper. That means you can buy it, you can sell it, you can sign your name to it and transfer it like you do a personal check. And there's a whole body of law out there called the law of negotiable paper. Sure is. That is, even the law of negotiable paper, Roger, says negotiable paper is not money. What it, when, you, when you learn about negotiable paper, the first overarching law you learn is that negotiable paper is a substitute for money. That's what you learn. It's a, prom- it's a promise to pay. Yeah, it's a promise, and it is not money. Even our law says that. It is a substitute for money, a promise to pay. And we used we were talking about the silver certificates that you and I remember when we were whippersnappers, where uh, the looked just like kind of almost like the bank notes we have now, the Federal Reserve notes, but it said uh, payable to the bearer and in, uh, in silver. And they have a blue. They have a blue indicia. Uh huh. Uh Uh-huh. Well, we don't have those anymore. Well, even if we had them, Roger, it would be unconstitutional in this sense, because a negotiable paper, and that's what a bill is, a dollar bill, a hundred dollar bill, those are, but they're not even lawful negotiable paper. They were when they were bearer certificates who pay Mm -hmm. to the holder, pay to the bearer, as I think is what it used to say. Well, that that's true negotiable paper. But it doesn't even say that anymore. And they're saying it's negotiable paper, but it's not. It's just, it's just trash. Now, here's the overarching principle about money that I tried to get across. And I credit uh, a fellow named uh, Randy, I'm trying to think of his last name. I've interviewed him before. He's an economic ag analyst, analyst. And he makes the point. It's a good point. He said, all true wealth either rots or rusts. Uh-huh. All true wealth either rots or rusts. Well, people say, uh, "Is gold? Does gold rust?" And the answer is yes, it does. How about silver? Yeah, that rusts too. How about copper? Yeah, copper rusts. How about iron? 
Oh yeah. Iron rust. What about pork bellies? Do they rot? Yeah, they rot. How about grain in the bin? Will it rot? You bet it will. Well, what about tobacco leaves they used to use? Well, yeah, that stuff used to rot too. That's true. Well, how about hides from Adirondack mountains? You'd be a trapping otter or a coon or a beaver. Yeah, that stuff will rot. It's, it's biodegradable. It will rot. Well, what about, people say, what about dynamite? Will that stuff rot? Well, yeah, it will, it will rust. You know, rusting is nothing but oxidation. Sometimes mm-hmm. it occurs rapidly, like a detonation, uh, over 35,000 feet per second. Or it, mm-hmm. it occurs a little slower, like gunpowder, which is an explosion, less than 35,000 feet per second. Or it occurs even slower than that, like wood and coal and paper burns. That's oxidation. Uh, and then, of course, beyond that is uh, it's just rust. And gold does rust, but it rusts at such a slow rate that's not detectable by man. That's why we believe it's a good place to store wealth. It will not dissipate into the atmosphere with oxidation to any degree that amounts to anything. So we store wealth in gold and silver. Copper, you can see the rust on copper, Roger. It's a, a verdigree, to oh, use yeah. the kind of a green stuff, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But true wealth either rusts or rot. Yes. And um, if it doesn't rust or rot, it's not true wealth. And so there are substitutes for true wealth, such as we used to have the silver bearer certificates. That was not true wealth that the government issued those, but that was a substitute for true wealth. That's a lawful part of our legal tradition. The they, true had wealth, cer- they had gold certificates too. I used to have some. I used to have one. Oh my! My grandma saved hers, and I don't know who in the family got them. My mother probably got them. She had a pile of them. She wanted to save, of course. Well, we talked here. I want to read a poem. Can I read a poem, Roger? You, you will you indulge me? Brent, my, you can do anything you want right here, buddy. <laughs> well, when I was in the gold mining business, I wrote a poem after, right after that or during. I was right at the end. I remember I put it together, and I couldn't find the blasted thing yesterday. I wanted to use it. And so uh, I tried to reconstruct it. And then I did find it in an obscure spot on the Internet. Somebody else found it for me. I don't know how they did oh, cool. it. cool. But let me, let me read this poem to you. Now, this is about... This is called The Law of the Miner, and the name of this presentation was, or is, uh, the name is Gold is Where You Find It. Gold is Where You Find It. And here's, the, here's what I wrote. My story is curious. This is after my experience in the gold fields for a few years. Uh, my story is curious, but this I know. When it happens to you, here's how it will go. In your haste for bonanza, you'll try to stay true. Hoping against hope, good will happen to you. But it's BS till it's bullion. Less it's bullion, the old miner did say. His wise words still start to echo by night and by day. As you moil for gold, you can hear them resound while working some liar's hole way down in the ground. It's BS, less it's, bull, less it's bullion, the old miner repeated. His words still echo, in my ears they have seated. As I toil and moil, nonstop they redound, while moiling for gold, way down in the ground. My eyes red with dust, scorpions abound, rattlers and tarantulas, a threat all around. No voice is heard, 
just the faint echo sound. A miner's a liar with a hole in the ground. <laughs> Got to find where I'm at here. Oh, gold's where you find it. The old miner also did say, and the closer you get to it, the longer the day. The more it resists, the more you feel like a clown. While Bonanza eludes you way down in the ground. Ain't no sense asking. It don't matter no more. Cold and hungry, outcast, dejected and sore. My partners have left me flat busted and down with an empty sack in a hole in the ground. A liar on top, a dupe down below. With hope of bonanza, worth plenty of dough. Visions of gold still dance all around. Miner's fever, gold fever, like a grave in the ground. If people only knew, Roger, what it takes to get gold out of the ground. Well, to find it and then to get it out. (laughs) It would be even more valuable to them. But not only is gold a medium of exchange, it is not a substitute for money. It has a value of itself. It is money because it is worth something all by itself, even if you didn't use it as a medium for exchange. So what I was trying to say last night in this presentation was that Americans should demand gold and silver coin over paper money for five reasons. Our present economic plight, our constitution's demand, our common law's first principles, our Bible's testimony, and history's lessons. (laughs) Now, if I may read one more set of things that I learned when I was out West, and this isn't all of them, but this is some of them. And this, again, is a, a miner talking. And I learned these things from miners things that they told me that were not written down anywhere. The ancient laws of the miners, I call them. First, most gold mines are holes in the ground with liars at the top and dupes at the bottom. <laughs> now that, that's a quote from Sam Clement. And that was that's his conclusion. Uh, uh, after working in the, in the silver mines in, in Nevada and the gold mines. Yes. Right. But, and that is the impetus a gold mine, uh, gold mines are holes in the ground with liars at the top and dupes at the bottom. That's the impetus for that poem. Second, a hundred percent of nothing is nothing. Uh, gold miners fight over claims, or they used to, and uh, they were fighting over a hundred percent of nothing because they hadn't produced anything yet. Mm-hmm. That's what gold miners most often fight over. Um, So there's no sense fighting over gold before you find any. That's the third law. The fourth law is that gold is where you find it. People would ask me, where where would I go? Had a guy ask me last night, where where can I go to to mine gold? I said, well, you have to just, you're asking where gold is and gold is where you find it. And there has never been an improvement upon that principle. Nobody knows where it is. People have an idea where it might be. 
It's like drilling for oil. The man that made more money than anybody in the world drilling for oil was Hunt. His name was Hunt. And he was from right down the road, not far from where I grew up, a place called Ramsey. He had a third grade education, didn't know squat from straight up, sick him from come here about geology. Every time he poked a hole in the ground, the oil bubbled out <clears> and it didn't stop. And they say in the oil field, and I analogize this to gold or anything else, they say in the oil field, some men just have a nose for oil. Mm-hmm. And the, the geologists say that because they don't know where the oil is. Oh, they got ways to make, it, to make their guesses better, but they don't know. Fifth, if it runs around in the gold pan, don't chase it because it ain't gold. If it runs around in the gold pan, don't chase it because it ain't gold. You know, gold mm-hmm. has specific gravity that is greater than most any other material you can find in the mountains or in the desert. And therefore, if it's in gravel or sand or any other kind of material, it goes straight to the bottom and you don't have to do much of anything to make it happen. And if you're panning gold, what you're doing is you're agitating, you're you're taking that pan, putting a little water in it, and you're shaking it around and raking the the light-colored rocks and sand off the top. And when you get all of it raked off and agitated around, you'll see a little bead of black sand, all black. Down in the corner, when you tilt the pan and look through that little bit of water, there'll be black sand down there. And in that black sand is going to be the gold, if there is any. Well, why is it black sand? Why is it black? Well, here's the reason, and this is fundamental geology, and if you learn this, you'll know more than a lot of geologists know. I'd had geologists come out to the gold mines from the large companies like, oh, that big one there in Phoenix. I can't remember the name of it. You forget so fast, but um, geologists been working for nine years, one guy, working as a geologist, never seen gold, raw gold out of the ground. He was in a company that had gold mines and mining properties all over the world, never seen raw gold. Well, that's getting too removed. And of course, as long as he could make a hundred grand a year traveling around and looking at gold submissions, gold property, mining, potential mining property, he'd sit in town, smoke cigarettes and drink coffee and draw his hundred thousand dollars. He'd never get serious about hunting gold. It's the man that's hungry. that's crawling around through the desert, like a rattlesnake or a coyote eating sardines and crackers and smoking pot he's the foundation of the gold and silver industry in america and always has been they call him the prospector he's the one that's got gold fever he's the one that's got the nose for the gold he's the one that'll take a measly ten thousand dollars for a referral for a mining company to uh, do a little exploration and he'll he feels like he struck it rich and he'll go back in the desert and eat sardines crackers and smoke pot for the next year or two years and look around for nuggets. That's what, that's what fires the industry. Amazingly, uh, more, the golden or the oil industry is a little different on that point. But with, when it comes to precious metals, it's the man that never takes a bath that they, they have to put out in an ante room when he comes into Phelps Dodge. That's the name. <laughs> of the company. He comes oh, yeah, in yeah. Phelps, Phelps Dodge in Phoenix to make a referral. And they say, well, don't sit here in the lobby. You sit out in the hallway because they can't stand the smell. I've heard stories like that, and I've met fellows like that out in the desert, crawling around, got the gold fever. They'll never make any money. They've just got the gold fever, and they get a nugget, and they slobber over it for the next two or three years, showing people what they've found. Um, If gold is anything but money, 
uh, if gold is anything but a tool, is the way to say it, called money, well, you'll never do any good with it. And even a gold miner, if he looks at it, if he gets the fever, he's done. The fever will destroy you. Yep. Um, well, there's two kinds of rocks. This is the geological lesson. There's two kinds of rocks in the world, friends. This sounds like a phrase from that Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. There are two kinds. Remember that one fellow, the ugly guy says, there's two kinds of people in the world, my friend. Them that's got guns and them that don't got guns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there's two kinds of rocks in geology. There's light-colored rocks and there's dark-colored rocks. And then there's everything in between those two poles, everything on the continuum between. Light-colored, dark-colored. And the light-colored then grades into the dark-colored. Well, a dark-colored rock, the reason it's dark-colored is because it's got ferrous material in it. That's called iron. It's got iron in it. The more iron that's in a rock, the darker it gets, and the less iron, the lighter it gets until it's more quartz. Quartz is silica, SiO2, and that stuff, it doesn't have any iron. Well, it has always have iron around it, but silica is SiO2, no ferrous material in it. Well, the dark-colored rocks, if you see a lot of dark-colored rocks laying around, there's a possibility, that's a sign, there could be gold. Because ferrous material, iron, is a heavy metal. And gold uh, occurs where there are a lot of heavy metals, uh, copper, uh, silver, uh, sweets of metals, uh, precious minerals, precious metals come uh, together in nature because of specific gravity. Like I said a while ago, the gold has a specific gravity of about 13 and a half compared to water, which is the standard. It's assigned a specific gravity number of one. It takes 13 and a half cups, for example, 13 and a half cups of water to balance in a scale one cup of gold. That's called specific gravity of 13 and a half. If the specific gravity of material is less, like silver or copper, specific gravity of eight, nine, it'd take nine cups of water to balance one cup of a mineral with specific gravity of nine. Well, gold's 13 point high. That's really high. Now there are some higher, but they're not well known because of, of, um, a lot of properties and, uh, where, where you can find it. And one of them is platinum, but it's, I, people say, should I buy platinum or gold? As somebody asked that last night. I said, well, it's better probably to buy gold as uh, mm-hmm. not an investment. Uh, precious metals are not an investment. Precious metals are a way to store wealth in a small spot. That's what they Mm -hmm. are. Because the worth of, I'm not preaching to Roger here, I'm just talking, because Roger, he's into this stuff too. The worth of of precious metals never changes. It's the dollar that goes up and down, and of course the markets, and right now the banksters have done a, a job of trying to suppress the price of gold, but they're not doing a real good job. They can't. They've been unloading gold like mad, mm. trying to suppress flood the market with it, suppress the, the price. The, they're they're buying the banks and central banks are buying gold by the thousands of tons right now. Okay, they've yeah. switched then. That that's, that's why, Brent. You know why. You know why, Brent? I mean, it's very interesting. You may not know this. Paul's got something to add. What do you, What do you got, Paul? 
Um, I want Brent to talk about CommonLawyer.com for the next two to nope. three minutes because we've got a whistler coming, and I want to make sure that the folks in Chicago at 106.9 WBOU have access to <laughs> CommonLawyer.com. To Mr. Winters. Yep. They're the ones that are yep. probably going to need it. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. And then, Roger, hold don't forget your thought. I don't worry. I won't. I won't because it's important. You need yeah, to know about this if you too. don't. So roll on, Brent. This is Brent. Uh, my name is Brent Allen Winters. Uh, you can find me at commonlawyer.com. That's www.commonlawyer.com. And there you can find all. Take advantage of the resources there. Uh, there are about a dozen books by yours truly um, with the uh, the comment, a common lawyer comments, a common lawyer comments on the Fifth Amendment, a common lawyer comments on the right to remain silent, a common lawyer comments on the jury, how to be a jury member, what to do, what to expect, what do you know? Uh, then you can uh, find a book on uh, the excellence of the common law, comparing and contrasting our law of the land, our common law with its ever-present antagonist on every continent and in every age, the law of the city, the canon civil laws of Rome a 958-page book, and then also a translation of the Bible from the original tongues, from the original tongues, the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Koine Greek of the Newer Testament. I call it toward a raw translation. Why do I call it toward a raw translation? Because I don't want to cook the book. I want to deliver it up just the way it was delivered to me um, in the original tongues. Over 35,000 footnotes, a lot of them explaining why I translate this word the way I do and that one the way I do, and 170, over 170 appendices tracing major themes throughout the warp and the woof of the context of the text of the Bible. Uh, you can get that in digital form. The other book's in digital form also. A commentary, uh, a common layer comments, clause by clause, blow by blow, of our Declaration of 76 and our Constitution of the United States. You can get that there. But most importantly right now, I don't want to forget to say, join our militia course. Sheriff Darleaf of Barry County, Michigan, and myself, he's sheriff up there, we're teaching a course on the four militia clauses of our Constitution of the United States, the four militia clauses. You've all heard about the Second Amendment and the evil <laughs> empire. The evil empire wants you to focus on the <laughs> the second amendment now, they don't want you to know about the other the other three militia clauses now, they got you focused on the second amendment they can keep you down the second amendment's important of course it's even foundational to the other three amendments but without the other three amendments um, we're hamstrung and what we are teaching is about those other three amendments and each of those three or four amendments of our constitution through the first three delegate duties to certain people in government uh, certain classes of people. The fourth militia clause doesn't delegate any duties at all, but it recognizes a duty that every male over age 20 already has. That's a militia. And that duty is twofold. Uh, defense of the land by force of arms if necessary, and defense of the law of the land by serving on the jury. That's the two duties of government, period, and it is the militia. The militia men of the 13 original colonies that ratified our Constitution and then told government how they wanted to handle this and delegated powers to them. Well, that's uh, the, the course at Winter's End on the militia clauses. Come and take them. We find that people in Australia, by the way, are trying to put something in place like our U.S. Constitution. They like that. Of course, it's a common law country. They ought to like it. 
And uh, they need to take this course too, Roger. I want them to understand the foundations as best they can of our common law tradition and our militia is that foundation. CommonLawyer.com. Thank you, Paul. Roger, back to you. I think the Canadians Um, need it too, boy. We'll talk about that in a minute too. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. We're signing off at 106.9 WBOU-FM in Chicago. Uh, join us in the second hour by going to thematrixstocks.com. You can find the Eurofolk Radio or Global Voice Radio links there, and you can follow us on the Internet or call in either through FCC or Zoom. Thank you, Raj. Thank you, Brent. Okay, good enough. Brent, are you familiar with the Basel Three Accords? Does that strike a chord with you? No, well, just I've heard you you or somebody mention it recently, but I don't know much about it. Well, it's uh, several things are revolving around it. You know about the, let's take this back a couple of steps. You know about the Bank of International Settlements, right? Uh-huh. And it's yeah. in Basel, Switzerland. It was formed in the early 30s, and it's the oh. Central Bankers Bank. Yeah. It's uh, on a par with the Vatican, the city of London, and Washington, D.C. The Swiss government cannot step foot on the property they can't serve process on anybody those people have their own passports and they're virtually untouchable what is it a free, a free zone of some kind or is that what you yes call it? well it's the, it's one of these uh, sovereign zones they've given to themselves yeah oh. so anyway um they uh they were founded in the early 30s and uh, they have these accords that they pass periodically, and the last one they passed, I, I want to think it was about 2015, maybe, uh, is called Basel Three. Okay, and um, in the Basel Three Accords, well, they've done two things. It's it's, it's hitting us two different ways right now. One in there is the change of demand deposits. Now, you with your banking knowledge will know what that is. The system uh, is fractional reserve, which means that when you take money out of a bank, they've got to hold a percentage called the demand deposit, and they can loan out the rest. And the next bank that gets it has to keep the same percentage, and they can loan out the rest. And that was one of the ways they got the Federal Reserve Act passed. Uh, They termed it the elasticity of the money supply. Gold and silver are not elastic unless somebody hits a Comstock load or a big vein somewhere. Uh, but this gave the elasticity for the economy to grow. That was one of their excuses. Okay. Uh-huh. So uh, it's that demand deposit. During COVID, they dropped it to zero. It usually used to be around 10%, I think. Okay. Uh-huh. Or in COVID, they dropped it to zero. Uh-huh. And now they're raising it to 20%. Oh. They're taking money out of circulation, first time since the 30s, and they're raising the reserve requirement, and we'll see what they do with the interest rates. Okay, If you really want to spike in the heart, you raise the interest rates on top of those other two things, and you got financial calamity. Okay, Because those banks that haven't had have any demand deposit to preserve against a bank run, now they've got to go and take 20% somehow out of the economy or find it so they can carry it on their books. So that it's supposed to, for the audience that might not understand, it's supposed to be a cushion in case there's a bank run, a run on the banks. Okay. Right. Okay. All right. Well, so that's one aspect of it uh, that's important currently. Okay. And what's coming this year. Um. Also, the uh, the other thing's pretty important, Brent. Next 
not this coming Monday, but Monday after next, the 11th, when the Silicon Valley Bank went under and those signature banks and a couple of them went under last year, they opened up a trough for all the banks, but they couldn't just isolate it to those that were in trouble. They had to open it up for all banks. So all banks have had a federal trough for the last year and a half. That closes Monday the 11th. No more trough for the banks, which means the medium and small banks that are in trouble are going to go under or get bought up by the larger banks, the five larger banks, which I assume they plan on prevailing through this. Yeah. Yeah. So that's all wrapped up in that part of it. That's not the part I wanted to concentrate on. The part I wanted to concentrate on is what they did with gold in Basel three and why banks are buying it by the thousands of tons right now. Uh Um, from the origination of the Bank of International Settlements in the 30s, a bank, and you may know this from your cases, a bank has three tiers of assets. Did you know that, Brent? No, I don't I don't know where you're going, so I won't say that I do. I make sure to okay. learn what you're saying. Well, a tier one, tier two, and tier three, okay? And here's the difference. A tier one is the most liquid of assets, uh, bonds, stocks, cash, etc. And they can carry 100% of the value over to the balance sheet from a tier one asset. Tier two are less uh, uh, less solvent, and they can carry 75% of the value to the balance sheet. Tier three, where gold has always been since the origination of the Bank of International Settlements, they can carry 50% of the value over. Then Basel three, they moved gold from a tier three to a tier one asset. Well, all of that, is hooey all of it well man, let me tell you what the, that's arbitrary beyond arbitrary 75 it, it is yeah go ahead all right so here's what it looks like they're going to do there was a head of the bis it was a dutch guy he, he he did not come up through the financial arm but he became head of the bis and when he retired they he was interviewed and he said well we see this problem coming on the paper and what we'll probably do is we're going to put in a position where we'll keep gold prices down and the banks can buy a bunch of gold and then when the thing crashes the paper will go under and the gold will go to 20 or 30 thousand dollars an ounce and make up for the losses in the paper and the institutions will stay solvent that's what's coming oh i I don't doubt it but constitutionally this is so clear it is so clear as a matter of what the constitution says that it is against the law for anybody to tamper with weights and measures Right. It's against the law for anybody to say, well, we want the dollar to be worth this much. We want to print money and inflate so the dollar, the value of the dollar goes down. That's all they're doing all the time, nonstop, is manipulating the value of the dollar. The yep. Bible, the Bible, I believe it's Deuteronomy chapter 17, I don't remember, but clearly the Bible says you can't survive as a nation if you allow people to do that. That's what yep. they're doing. I'll tell you what else. I'll tell you what else they're doing. It's against the Constitution. I don't know why people don't talk about this. I don't know why lawyers don't talk about it. I don't know why the Patriot community doesn't talk about it. The Constitution of the United States says that no one is allowed to diminish diminish the pay of federal judges. 
No one. And every time the bankers do that, they diminish the pay of federal judges. It's true. Come at this from any angle, it's clear that, of course, they're destroying everybody's future. You can't plan for the future when you've got a bunch of goofuses that are, and these are arbitrary decisions. You th- People think, I made this point last night, too. People think, oh, these bankers are smart. They know how to manipulate. They know this. No, they aren't. They're the same ding-dongs you went to college with or maybe law school. Uh, they're always drunk all the time or chasing skirts out of control. And now that's what they're doing now, but they've added opiates and drugs to it. It's just like I read about, uh, what's his name, Roosevelt, the president, when he was trying to take over a communist leader in America. He, somebody asked him when they were in, had the Agricultural Adjustment Act there, they were setting prices. And somebody said, well, what, what do you think we ought to set it at? And he said, I don't know. Guess a number. Somebody threw a number out like that, and he said, I'll up you two, and we'll make it that. That went on all day, every day in the White House. Mm-hmm. And they thought that they, we, oh, these people know what they're doing. No, they don't. They don't know any better than you do, and probably a lot less, because they're over with their power. Somebody wants to say something. Go ahead. I think Abram's got something he wants to inject. Is yes. that you, Abram? I, yes, sir. Uh, I was just going to comment on, so what, what uh, Roger's saying is that they've changed the incentive structure for banks to hold gold. So when it's tier three, right, and it's 50%, so they can only claim 50% of it as an asset, okay? So it, it, they basically take it as a loss on their books or they can't claim it. Well, uh, in 2012 or so, they changed that. So then they, they can claim 100% of their gold assets on their books. And so the incentive mm-hmm. has been changed for them to want to hold gold, okay? So previously, sure they were selling gold. They wanted to devalue the, the value as far as the banks are concerned, and that's been changed. And so that's why they're yep. buying up all this gold by the uh, by the thousands of a ton. And, so and they're keeping anything you're saying. Right. They're right. keeping the price down by naked shorts, which is the way they always control it, futures, and the banks are buying it. And I'm going to tell you what else they're trying to do. They're trying to put all these dealers and keep this, uh, any supply away from them so you can't get it. They can have it. Well, That's going on, too. That, yeah, I get it, Roger. I'm glad you told me that. But none of that is ever going to stop. It's not going to stop because as long as the banks, as long as usury is lawful, or or, or we allow it, it's the way to say it. It's not law. As long as usury is allowed, that is not going to stop. And I was yep. trying to point out, I wasn't disagreeing with Roger. I was pointing out that there are laws against all of this, all of it. But these mm-hmm. laws are not about the minutia of the things you're talking about. The laws are against usury at common law. Usury, uh, the Bible forbids it utterly. The con- our common law has forbid it for centuries. And then you go to the, the banking itself, a matter of gold. Gold never loses its value. The, 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 the law or the supposed law of Congress says that nobody can audit the Federal Reserve Bank. And as long as people say that's true and accept such madness, this is going to continue. Okay, I can know about all the details of how this happens, and I like to know, but it doesn't change my point of view. I've got to keep doing it. The value of gold is never going to change. The worth of it will never change. All you got to do is figure out how to get your hands on it. And there are yep. ways to do it. And there is more gold, according to all the people that study the matter. There's more gold under the ground in the lower 48. There's 95, only less than 5% has been recovered. That's the opinion of the people that study such matters. Wow. 
Wow. Plenty of gold. You know, they said there isn't plenty of oil either. Oh, we're out of oil. We're dependent. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've discovered two fields in the United States in the last 10 years that have had more oil than any fields that have ever been discovered before. We we didn't even know it was there. It wasn't that far away. We just hadn't found it yet. Right. And God wants us to get it. That's what he wants. Go ahead. You know, the the idea that oil is, is, you know, made from fossils and so forth is just uh, a lie on its face. You know, it's it's abiotic. It's produced deep under the, under the ground, and it it is lighter than water, so it floats from the water on the ground and floats up to the surface. So it's produced everywhere and always. That's why you can find it in the bottom of the ocean and Saudi Arabia, etc. So, yep. Because the earth. Uh, yeah. The thing about the gold is that you can't get to it. May What's I? That? Roger. Yeah, May I? Yes, I get. Yes, who is it first? Identify yourself, please. Yes, Roger. This is Gigi. Good day, everyone. Uh, along the lines of what you're talking about with oil, I wanted to share something that uh, uh, I haven't talked about much because it doesn't come up much. But years ago, um, about 10 years ago at least, uh, I managed to uh, get copies of videos done by a fellow by the name of, um, I think it's Pastor Williams. And he was yes. um, a pastor Lindsay, at... Lin, Lindsay Williams. Okay, I'm not sure if, it's, if that was his first day yes. or his last no, name. Yeah. Yes, he was a pastor up in Alaska. He's very prolific, all that stuff, same guy. Talking about yeah, gold, the, the when, field up there that's the Gull Island, I think he called it, or whatever, where they're putting all that oil back into the ground up there. Uh, I don't know nothing about that right now, anything recent, but what stuck in my mind was through the years when I became more familiar with um, the wars going on over gold and how they're using it to battle with one another, um, it brought back to my mind, why is the U.S. Um, going, uh, going, getting oil from other countries? Because here's what the last Oh, two videos in conclusion of his story of being a pastor at the um, um, logging place. Uh, he was so well known that the head guy was having a bunch of high ups come in the next day for a meeting, a special meeting. And um, he was invited. And um, he he sat through all of it and listened. And the next day, the man who invited him came to him and told him, you got to promise me, you got to do this favor for me or my life's on the line. And he said, well, what is it? He said, anything you heard at that meeting, you have to keep to yourself. And so he kept it to himself for like 30 or 40 years and he couldn't hold it back anymore. So he put out this on, on the internet. And what it was, was that they had um, hit oil that was enough to supply the world for 400 years. Yeah, it's Gold Think Island. Think about that. It's Gold yeah. Island, yeah. isn't like, it, that reserve, I believe. Yeah, for yeah, sure, was, 400 he very, years. He was all, yeah, he was all over the Patriot community for a number of years before he passed. He just passed a few years ago. I'm sure Brent's familiar with Lindsey Williams. Oh, I remember him, sure. And Yeah. You know, to follow on that yeah. with that thought, they've also found that yep. oil oils or uh, oil wells 
have replenished themselves. So oil wells yes, have, they have drained of their uh, oil. They've, you know, it took like 30 years. They ca- or they capped it, came back 30 years, and 50% of it had come back. So yep. you know, it's being produced deep under the ground. You have hot, you have heat yep. pressure. You have a lot of carbon, a lot of water, and this there's a process down there that uh, that uh, you know and time, lots of time. So it's produced. It's not uh, the the legacy of dead uh, yep. biomaterial. Nope, not at all. Uh, our, while we've got it open here, is there anybody else that had any questions or comments on what we've covered so far? Yeah, just uh, it's Gary. Yeah, Brent, you're hey, familiar Gary. with Wall Back Canada. A whole bunch of oil wells they've restarted uh, pumping over there from, uh, in Indiana. And uh, Gene and I have panned gold in Indiana and found gold. We've panned gold in Montana and I've panned gold in Arizona. And found gold uh-huh. every time. Yeah, where, do you, where are you from, Indiana? Yep, I was born in Marion, Indiana. Oh, okay. Well, no, somebody asked me last night about. Well, can I pan gold around here? And I said, I don't know anybody that's ever found gold in the Ohio Valley. Ohio Valley. Of course, we're in the Wabash Valley. You are too. But uh, well, I uh, now you're the first guy that said that. I and I don't doubt it. Because all, see, around home, and I don't know what exactly what it is around where you are, but, I mean, in the Wabash Valley, when you drill for oil, you go through 100 feet of what they call glacial mud. And before you ever hit any rock, and the rock you hit is not an igneous rock, it's sedimentary. You hit shale, then you hit a sandstone, and then the, go, and the oil will migrates through the sandstone. That's it's moving, and this point was made a while ago. The cap rock on top of the sandstone is always shale. That's the way water leaves rock. Shale is clay that's been put under pressure and consolidated. So you got a cap rock to hold it in. So when you're drilling down, you got to get down to where you bust through that cap rock. Then you've tapped into the oil, and uh, all that all that rock down there though is sedimentary. It's rock that's broken off and washed out of eroded away from igneous rock someplace and then water has deposited it and made those layers if that's true and that has to be true then the sedimentary rock would have gold in it probably likely somewhere because gold is from deeper in the earth and uh, we don't know always where it comes from we know that it gets hot and shoots up into the cooling cracks of magma chambers that's why you have veins of gold the silica the silica, the SiO2 with the gold, goes in those cracks, and we call them veins. Sometimes they're very wide, and sometimes they're they're only like uh, hair wide. You know, they're very very thin. But that stuff washes down in creeks and rivers, and becomes placer gold. And then, of course, where it's in the rock. But yeah, I, I I say it has to be true at some point that you would find it. But I wouldn't know how you'd do it unless you were in a place. And Indiana has those places, like down in South Central Indiana, places like that, where the the rock is exposed and the glacial mud isn't as heavy. Not just uh, what I've concluded about it, but I appreciate you telling me that. I know that, see, the first gold strike in America was in Georgia. Yes, Dahlonega. Yeah, and it's a big one. It was a big one, and there's still gold there, and there was a large mint there, a private mint, not a a government mint. And, uh, Uh And in those places, I made this point last night too, in places where gold has been hit, Georgia is one of them, Northern uh-huh. California is another one, Nevada, mm-hmm. and, and Montana, Idaho. In those places, until World War I, 
um, government minted money was not the currency. They didn't want it. They wanted their own private minted money that they knew was local and they could trust, and that's mm -hmm. and wouldn't be mixed or adulterated with other materials. And so, until World War One, uh, the bankers see just before World War One, there was no Federal Reserve Bank. Well, there was, but it didn't have any power yet. But quickly, it gained power. And now it has an absolute monopoly, even in those places where there's plenty of gold being produced. Roger, in the Carlin trend in Nevada, in the last 30 years, we've produced more gold out of that Carlin trend than we have in the entire history of our country in the lower 48. Is, is that right? Yeah. Now, who ever heard of the Carlin trend? There are people listening <sighs> to me and they're saying, I never heard of that place. Well, shoot, when we used to find gold, everybody knew. But that's not the way it is now because the feds have gotten such a powerful control of the media, of all the trading arms, the offshoots, mm -hmm. and they even suppress gold. And the, the policy, of the unfortunately, of the Federal Reserve Bank now is we want, and they control the government, as you know, we want the Chinese to have uh, the most interest in our minerals in America. And Chinese companies control the largest gold mines in, the, in our country now. No, that's not a good thing, my friend. That's, that's sickening. I mean, within my lifetime in the mining business, if you weren't an American American, uh, <clears throat> American citizen, I don't like that word. I have to wash my mouth out when I say it, but that's what the law said. If you were an American citizen or you had intentions of becoming one, you could stake a mining claim. Now, I believe that's still true. I believe that's still true. You can't be a foreigner and stake a mining claim. And that happened early on after the, the California rush because so many hundreds of thousands of people flocked in from all over the world. And the Americans got upset and said, wait a minute, this is our country. And so they started passing laws in California at the federal level because of the outcry to keep other people out. And hundreds of thousands of people left America at that time because of that. And it's been that way ever since. And the mining law of 1872 has upheld that. But that doesn't mean that a man can't stake a claim and then sell his claim to somebody else. And that's what's happened. You can even sell your claim to a corporation. You see, a corporation cannot stake a mining claim as a matter of law in America. But a corporation can buy a mining claim from some other living, breathing man that has staked one. That's the way the law works under our mining law. And that's not a bad thing, I don't suppose, if you've got corporations or partnerships or some other group that uh, are some parts of the government would recognize as an entity, a corporate body. But it's dangerous. Corporations are dangerous to look at them that way. I'll say that. Yeah, not such a good thing. Well, back to you, Roger. Okay. I want to, Gary, um, I heard from Jim White this morning. Could you give me a call over the weekend if you get a chance? Appreciate it. Um, anybody else got anything they wanted to uh, comment on here on this topic is a really, really important topical topic is gold and silver. If you got any extra cash, you ought to try and acquire some. Okay. Roger. Uh, yes, there's Dave. Yes, Dave. Hi everybody. Um, Brent was talking about what it said on those, uh, silver and gold certificates. It said, uh, the, must pay the bearer on demand. Right. So I just yeah. wanted to throw that in there. Thank you. Good subject. Yeah. I appreciate it. Well, appreciate the comment. And we, the law calls those bearer certificates. 
right. bearer certificates. In other words, if you've got it in your hand, it's yours. It's negotiable. Yep. Those bearer certificates are, you don't have to sign anything like you do a personal check. You sign it over to somebody else on the back. To negotiate a bearer certificate, you just hand it to the other fellow. And then right. he has it in his hand, then it's his. He, he has the right to redeem it for silver or gold. And uh, there stock, are corporations that are bearer certificates, too. Uh, yeah. used to be where they don't have a central registry of ownership, and whoever owns the certificate owns the corporation. Yeah, and that's um, uh, the stock certificates. It used to be like yes. that some. I, there's no law that says they can't be that way. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you've got them in your hand. Now, I'm, I told two stories that I probably told here. Last night I told two stories to illustrate how money works in a fundamental way. And uh, one of them is the case of the of the wampum, and the other one is the case of the the New Zealand case of, uh, of the sardines. Of the sardines, right? Now you you I have told them on here because you remember both of them, but I'll tell one, Roger, and uh, maybe you want to tell the other one if you remember. Well, no, I'm I'm not all that familiar. I think I heard them from you or Paul or something. And if you know more details than I do, you can probably well, get it across that, better. Okay, well, the first one, they both illustrate the same thing, one from New England, one case, and the other case from New Zealand. The one from New England is about the New England settlers that came, the English Puritans. And when they got here, they didn't have any money. There was no money being um, being coined or otherwise printed. And even if there were, it'd be hard to get it here. And once it got here, people would hoard it because there wasn't that much. There weren't printing presses in the early days. Well, they, but they discovered that the Iroquois and the Mohawk and some other of those uh, indigenous tribes had money. And uh, it was uh, in two denominations. Uh, it was seashells and black seashells um, were one denomination and white seashells were a lesser denomination. And further, the ratio was two white seashells equal one black seashell like two 50 cent pieces equal one dollar piece well two white seashells well people were got to trading with those because they were trading with the engine tribes and then they got to trading among themselves and these seashells of course came from up around the coast of maine a lot of seashells up there and people would bring them in they'd use them of course there was the matter of inflation it wasn't that maine was that close or this this we're talking in the adirondack mountains we're talking at that time the wild and woolly west they were farther, far enough away from the coast and the settlements that they were into the west. Well, they were using this wampum and the Adirondacks and the White Mountains out there in New Hampshire, Vermont area. And uh, getting along right good, buying their groceries, buying their liquor, buying their clothes, trading, selling horses and horse trading and cattle trading and all sorts of trading and using these as a medium of exchange. Well, obviously, seashells aren't worth anything in and of themselves. And all of a sudden, over a period of a few weeks, the wampum went flatter and a flitter. Nobody would accept it in payment for anything. And people were aghast. They had all these seashells they'd collected, and nobody wanted them. And they were out money. They couldn't figure out why. Well, finally, somebody got to thinking about the matter who had looked into it and said they finally figured it out. And what it was, see, they had, uh, of course, they were trading with the Mohawk and the Iroquois and, and the other tribes and they were bringing in pelts, otter pelts, coon skins, possums, all sorts of critters, deer hides, wolf hides, 
And uh, their, the value of those hides was attached to specific amounts of that wampum. You know, a coon hide be worth uh, half a, or half a black seashell would be one seashell. And everybody knew what was worth what according to the wampum seashells. Well, if I'm, somebody said, you know, I finally figured out the, we've trapped out, or the Iroquois and the Mohawk and the white folk have trapped out most of the gravy of the of the fur out of the Adirondacks and the White Mountains. Well, they didn't know it, see, but because they had attached it to the fur that way, well, the fur really did back the wampum with something that had real wealth. Mm -hmm. In other words, it either rotted or rusted. Well, it's mm -hmm. biodegradable, the furs animals it was real wealth and it was back in the wampum and when the wealth was gone the wampum went flat so and the wampum wasn't worth anything it's just well not much calcium what's calcium worth you bust it up and eat it i guess but not much if anything so the wampum was a medium of exchange uh, uh, akin to paper money is paper money worth anything well a piece of paper is worth a cent or two with some little ink but um, it's not any detectable amount that made any difference that's what wampum was, but the wampum was backed by the fur in the Adirondack and the White Mountains that was out there for the getting. Well, the, the other illustration is about the, the New Zealand. When men first settled New Zealand, they came from Britain, and a lot of them were, were people that didn't have any future in Britain. A lot of Scotsmen, by the way, and a lot of Scots-Irish went there. A lot of Scots-Irish went there, and... Uh, when they got there, of course, they're out in the south, all, south and west Australia, and that was Aborigine land, and there wasn't any, anything there at all. But they were trying to get the place going, and um, there were settlers that came there looking for opportunity, and there were shipwrecks around there. And the law of shipwrecks is an important law, part of our, our admiralty law. Who gets what if somebody can retrieve what is wrecked from a ship? Well, shipwreck business got big, and so one enterprising Scot said, well, I'll build me a warehouse. There's no money here. We don't have any printing presses. I'll build a warehouse, and when there's a shipwreck, I'll offer people a place to store the goods that they can retrieve from the shipwreck, and in turn, I will give them certificates, a certificate saying how much of this, it, this commodity they brought in here is worth. And so people started using those warehouse certificates for money. Well, I'll give you this certificate. And uh, it, uh, so for so many sacks of rice, they got shipped in here. And that's the, the real values in the warehouse. But here's the certificate that says I own some of that real value. It's, it's they, a warehouse receipt. Yeah, that's what it was. It's a warehouse receipt. Well, one, uh, one Scotsman there got down on his luck and he was starving, but he had a warehouse receipt or a few for... Um, uh, canned sardines that were uh, shipwrecked and somebody had retrieved them. A ton or two of that stuff, canned sardines. So he's down in his luck and he gets real hungry and he's hungry and he goes to the warehouse and the warehouseman that put up the warehouse that runs the warehouse, he's the banker, see? And uh, he says, I got this warehouse receipt for sardines in a can and I need some because I'm starving. Oh, no problem. Let me see your receipt. Oh, okay, it says here you're entitled to 25 cans of sardines, like, cash, like going to the bank and cashing it in you know, for gold or something. So he takes his sardine cans and he walks outside the warehouse and he 
leans up against, sits down, leans up against the warehouse and takes his, his knife and tries to get one of those cans open, finally got it open. And when he did, uh, the smell that emanated from the sardine can was enough to knock a buzzard off the sideboard of a manure wagon. They were rotten. Well, he was really upset, so he took his sardines back inside, and he, he was visibly shaken. He told the warehouseman, he said, I want my receipt back. These sardines are no good. They don't have any real value. And uh, the warehouseman said, well, you're an idiot. He said, uh, everybody knows those are not eaten sardines. Those are trading sardines, which is to say they didn't have any intrinsic value at all. And when something, when there's nothing backing money, it's inevitable, it will happen, the money will fall flat at some point. You know, the evil empire has the control of the press and the control of the, the media, and they control the public opinion, and they can control what people think about money, and they can do it for a long time. But at some point, it will collapse. And once people understand and know that there is no value in the money, oh, we can even say to each other, we want it to have value, so we keep using it. Oh, we're afraid that it won't have any value. I got a lot of it. I want to keep using it. And people do that. And once a, a Federal Reserve Bank like ours gets a monopoly on the issuance and, and of money and banking, uh, people are really hesitant to abandon that system. Uh, but they were at some point. Yeah, go ahead. And they're not going to give it up either. Now, Brent, what no. about the greenbacks? Because there is one way to have an unbacked monetary supply that works. What is it? And there was a gentleman in Illinois, I believe, that had schooled Abraham Lincoln on this. And uh-huh. it's the theory that Lincoln used with the greenbacks when the, the Rothschilds came and wanted him to uh, loan him money at 26% interest or whatever uh-huh. it was. Uh-huh. Okay, so and this is where the theory of the greenbacks come from, and it works. Evidently, Uh there was a guy on the radio 15, 20 years ago. This was his deal. You have to spend it into circulation, okay, public works or whatever, like Roosevelt got the the new the new dollar after the uh, in thirties uh, war he spent it in with the WPA and all those other things and then you have to tax out the same amount so there's only enough there to facilitate commerce and there's no extra for speculation well and I get you, what you're saying yeah I get what you're saying but there but there now again it's man's heart is dark no man shall know him who's the one that's going to tax it out of circulation and the appropriate yeah. ratios and that's okay. why Lincoln, that will work yeah. that will yeah. work uh, the uh, the income tax during that war went in at the same time as the greenbacks and right. the federal federal reserve act was the same year as the Income Tax Act. The income tax came into America in 1913, right along, right, right beside, handmade right. to. So I'm with you, but that doesn't work either. Sooner, that's slavery. You can enslave people and make it work. That's true. But what you're doing, Roger, and I'll say one more thing. What you're doing is you're saying that the labor of the people of the United States is what back is what is backing the money. Yes, basically. Yes. So and, you still and done also, real well. See? And that was the very first income tax with Lincoln. And who did it apply to? Only federal employees. Mm -hmm. 
But okay. that, that's now, the enslavement of it. I get go forward. Go forward to 1913. This is very interesting, too, because mm-hmm. uh, this was the start. The start was forming the 14th Amendment, okay? But when they started instituting it, they came in and got control of the monetary supply with the Federal Reserve. And if you'll go back, it was 1913 was a very bad year. Of course, they love 13. You can see why all that converged on that point. But if you look at it and study it, the very first thing they did was pass the income tax rule, the 16th Amendment. 17th Amendment was in the summer. That severed the state's uh, uh, interest in the federal government with senators being appointed versus elected. Mm -hmm. And then in the Christmas is when they passed the Monetary Act. Okay, mm-hmm. so then we go through everything that happened in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, and the very last thing that they did after Bo- Brown versus Board of Education, where they made mm-hmm. the two statuses equal and overcame mm-hmm. Plessy, was mm-hmm. to put in the 1954 Internal Revenue Code in place 60 days later. So the very first action and the very last action were income tax. That, this is the Achilles heel of their system. They've mm-hmm. got to have the tax mechanism to fulfill for uh, taking care of the original credit spout, the bondholders getting their coupon payments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I, I get what you're saying, Roger. And that, that's the same system, see, that, that Joseph in the book of Genesis, the same system that he put in place by his influence that became the system that enslaved his own people. I don't. He didn't understand that at the time, but that is what happened. That's the sovereignty of God working. But in all of that system, it was a tax on labor, and they use labor as they say. Well, we we'll use labor to back is the, the basis, dollar, yep. which yep. is slavery. That's what it is. Yes, no without a doubt, yep. it has Not to be it. slavery, or they can't extend and and, and futurize and collateralize it. No, now, I'll tell you something else. I went into a. a time I was studying after World War II Uh when they were trying to reconvert the European uh, economies back to a gold standard. Mm -hmm. And that was done in 1922 at a meeting in Genoa, and it's called the Genoa Accords of 1922. And what they did uh, in England, because everybody had used gold and silver before World War One, then they loaded up the banks with all this debt and they converted to the paper so they could fight the war and, and make that transition. Well, after the war, there was so much of a calamity to go back to a metals basis. And in this general accords, here's what they did in England, for example, you could convert your paper to gold. Yeah, where's that no? Where's where's that paper noise coming from? Somebody's crinkling paper or something. You could, uh, and could have been me, Roger. So go ahead. Well, uh, okay. So, uh, what what they did was they said, okay, you can convert that gold back, but you can only do it a kilo at a time. And most of the people didn't have that much money, paper money, so they couldn't convert it into the gold uh, uh, kilo. But then at that same period of time, John Maynard Keynes had a statement in a Manchester business tabloid. Mm -hmm. And his statement, John Maynard Keynes, Mm -hmm. we all believe that gold and silver would increase the economy like nothing else. Mm -hmm. Well, I got to thinking about last night, there was a fellow in England, and his name was, uh, I mentioned this in the presentation, his name was Sam Johnson. 
And Sam Johnson wrote the first dictionary of the English language back in the 1600s, I believe. Wow. Before that, people just spelled words like they sounded. And whether you're educated or not, that was the habit. Well, he wrote the dictionary, and that's when spelling, that was the beginning of the standardization, standardization of spelling in the English tongue. But Sam Johnson was a right smart fellow. I mean, if you are spending your life studying words and writing a dictionary, it does a lot for your brain. I mean, he was thinking about all sorts of things and Mm -hmm. he'd go into where his office was this long time ago. And traditionally in England, they had what they called boot blacks. Now the boot black, they didn't shine boots back then. They blackened them when they got scuffed Mm -hmm. up. They did. We call them shoe shine boys, but they had what they called boot blacks and they weren't always boys. Sometimes they were men, but they were the lower strata of English society. And of course, over in the old country, they're more class conscious or were then than they are now. He'd see the boot black. And one morning he came into town and he saw the boot black and he needed to have his boots blackened. And so he told the boy he wanted his boots blackened. And the boy said, I don't don't have time today. I've got other customers I got to take care of. And that really threw him for a loop. Number one, he was surprised that the this boot black talked to him that way. And there were different classes, you see. That's an unwritten rule in the old country, more so than here. But it shocked him and set him back on his heels. He went into where he was working and he got to thinking about it. And he said, you know, why is it that he felt the the kahunis to do that? And then turn me down, not blacken my boots. When he got to thinking about it, and of course at that time the the, the um, Spanish galleons were being pirated and robbed, and from the New World gold and silver was flowing in like it had never flowed in before into England and into Europe. They had silver and gold, and he noticed that this um, boot black was getting paid in silver coin to do what he did, and people had more silver coin than they ever had had, and he said that boot black has the opportunity now to only do business with people he wants to do business with. And if somebody else was tipping him more than I was, he wanted, he wanted to go take care of them and not me. And then he said this, and this is the statement that I've never forgotten. It's worth canning and keeping in your head. This is his conclusion. After long studied contemplation, he said this, he said, gold and silver destroy feudal subordination. Gold and silver destroy feudal subordination. Well, that's the truth. It's more true today than it ever has been. Paper, mm-hmm. taking away gold and silver, give the powerful party, the mm-hmm. users, the banker, the people that shuffle paper to make money, gives them opportun- opportunity for fraud. Paper gives opportunity for fraud mm-hmm. and feudal subordination. Well, the paper's got to have that labor as a backing, which, as you said earlier, absolutely dictates slavery in whatever capacity. Yeah. 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 Okay. Now, are, Brent, have you ever heard of a guy named Jesse Livermore? Nope. Really? No, I don't think I have, Roger. Tell me about He it. was the guy that they uh, used to write as an uh, example. They used to write The Great Gatsby. Oh, I see. If you remember. Okay. Uh-huh. He was the celebrated investor on Wall Street in the 20s. Okay. He he lost, he gained and lost a fortune something like seven or eight times. Wow. Okay. Yeah, he was quite the guy. Okay. And uh, so much so that in New York in those days, they didn't have traffic lights. They had traffic towers. 
yeah. of the guys in the tower would direct the traffic. Okay. And he had some sort of a fancy car, and they could identify it a ways away. Mm-hmm. And Jesse Livermore never stopped at a red light. <laughs> yeah. Okay, they'd wave him through. They they changed uh, yeah, the traffic yeah. to wave him through. Yeah, yeah. And it was Jesse Livermore that was reputedly that was going into work one day, and he stopped on just like your boot black guy stopped at the shoe shine boy, and the shoe shine boy gave him a stock tip, and he went straight to the office and sold everything he owned. He said, "When okay. I get a tip from the shoe shine boy, it's time to get out of the market." <laughs> He was a he was a heck of a guy. Yes, hello. Yes, you know about Jesse. Yes, hi. This is Robbie. This is Robbie from North Carolina. I have a Bible question for Brent. Oh, great. Please. Yes, uh, a while back, Brent mentioned uh, something like um, we are required to write two copies of the Bible or something to that effect. And I wondered if he could clarify that and give us the source for that. No, here's what I want you to do. You got an internet? You got internet? Yes. I want you to look it up. It'll help you remember it, too, if I just tell you. Other people help them remember it. Everybody ought to look this up. Well, I, I, did, to- I did do a search, and I didn't find anything. I, I am aware in Deuteronomy 17 there is something about the king copy of the law but uh-huh. i wanted to know what you were referring to i'm referring to the requirement of the law of god requires all kings of israel to copy out their own copy of the of the bible for their own use throughout their life and to understand what a king is uh, puts a lot of light on that, and that's not something that's talked about a lot. The Hebrew word is melik, melik, and the word for kingdom is the same root, maluka, with a, a different suffix, a different ending. And in both of those cases, in both of those cases, what the word refers to is jurisdiction, chains of authority coming down from the, the, the true lawgiver, God himself, Yahuwah. And each of us that are born from above, according to the Bible, 1 John chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, just as an example, are born into an inheritance. And that inheritance includes a lot of things, including the law of God itself, the God's written expression of his will. The will of the sovereign is law. And the Bible is a book that reveals what God wants. Put it simply that way. And so to write it down, and this is part of, also part of um, the idea of, a, of an education for freedom. You know, there's two ki- only two kinds of education in, among mankind. One is an education for bondage. In other words, being prepared to be a slave. And in the ancient world, men were educated to be slaves. It is believed on good evidence that the man that wrote more of the New Testament than any other man was a slave. But he was a highly educated slave. 
I'm educated as a medical doctor. His name was Luke. As a slave, all that he earned as a medical doctor belonged to his master. But he was educated formally. But he was educated as a slave. To be educated as a freeman is a different education. And in the ancient world, freemen were educated different than servants, slaves. Servants is another word. This came to light in the, about 400 AD with the writings of Augustine, Bishop of Hippo. And he made the observation, he was an educated man. He said, I can read most anything I anything i can understand most anything i read i can express most of what i want to think i can understand most of what people say and i can say most of what i want to say and made it made make myself understood therefore i am a freeman i am a freeman he defined freemanship as the ability the ability to understand language whether written or spoken and to use it whether written or spoken. And later on, we ended up calling those the four arts of freedom. Reading, writing, listening, and speaking. Listening and speaking. The four arts of freedom. Uh, in the Latin, because of the influence of the, of the Roman pontiff and the priesthood, they're called the liberal arts. Now, Rome in Babylonian fashion has defined the liberal arts as scholasticism. And they've muddled it up quite a bit and to where it's, it's off, off base entirely. Uh, logic is a part of that. Rhetoric, now that's, not, that's not the arts of freedom. Uh, logic is what men do naturally. That's how they survive. You don't have to, horses are born to run. Birds are born to fly. Beasts of prey are born to ferocity. Hounds are born to hunt. And men are born to think. You don't have to teach a man how to use logic. I know they teach it in the universities. They end up categorizing it, giving names to it. But don't tell me that men don't think naturally. They're very logical creatures, very logical. They can't, they can't be anything else. That's the way God made us. But to learn the arts of language is quite another task. It takes a lifetime. And that's the art of freemanship. Freemanship. Oh, is he right? Well, yes. And uh, Augustine. Biblically, he's right. That's why God said to the kings, uh, what's a king? Someone who has been delegated authority. Every Christian man, every Christian woman has been delegated God's authority straight from God. No intermediary, no priesthood, no church organization, no institution such as a university or a government or the powers that be, the state. No, just straight from God. And because of that, the Bible says he has freed us. He who the Son makes free is truly free. It says in the book, Jesus Christ said that of himself. Well, that being true, then, we embark upon this, this quest to enjoy our freedom. Oh, you're made free. You're born free, born from above as a freeman. But how do you enjoy it? Well, God put it in your heart and your mind to have an inclination to follow that passion, that quest. And the way to enjoy freedom is to learn those four arts. And writing, writing out the Bible in its entirety is the command of God for those who have been born from above, who have been delegated that maluka, that from the maluka, the New Testament word uh, 
basileia, the chains of authority, the authority that you have to understand where it comes from. But everyone in the world, the Bible says that the uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Not everybody in the world can read. In fact, most people can't. That's a fact. Most people can't. But that's one of the arts of language. And that's where you start. Little babies learn how to hear, how can to listen, give how to obey. Can you give us the verse or verses that um, refer to that, that we as kings are to write a copy? I can't remember if you said one copy or two copies. Oh, just a copy. Just copy one out for yourself. I've known people that have done that. And all that talking, and really, you still want the verse. Now, <laughs> if you have the Internet, I want you to go look. I really do. Because when you do, you'll, it'll help. Again, it is the doing of things that impresses them deeper yes. upon our brain more than you can hear them. That's, that's a start. But you've got to do them. I did do, a, I did do a search after I heard you say that. And so I'm just okay. asking if you could share that with us. No, I want you I to didn't look. Find it. I didn't find it. Oh, you, Was well, it the there. one in De Deuteronomy 17? Well, you're still fishing for me to tell you. I want you to look. Now, it's there. It's an important part of the law of God. It's in the Older Testament. You can find it. Try some other words. Uh, there's got to be, a matter of fact, I have looked at plenty of websites that talk about that. And if you type in the idea, it'll come up. So that's what, said, when you I find did. it, please, 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 well, keep looking. Put in other words. It's there. Yeah, it's there. And uh, it'll help you a lot, too. No, that's a good idea. What I advise people to do is get those, uh, those composition notebooks that we used to have in school that have that stitching in the middle. You can buy them at Walmart and other kinds of stores and use those. They're, they hold together better than about anything and start copying the Bible out, by the time you get done, you'll have several several of those books. Now, choose a good, tra a good translation of the Bible. I advise the Geneva Bible, the New American Standard Bible, or the King James. Depends on what you want to learn. Now, if you want to learn the most beautiful English that anybody ever produced, you'd want to use the King James. That's the most beautiful classic piece of English literature in the world. But it's not the most accurate. Oh, it's accurate. Substantially accurate sufficiently accurate but there are more accurate translations than the new american standard is the more accurate translation now there are other considerations but if i were going to do it the king james is old english but it'll teach you a lot of things one of the problems with copying the king james though is the grammatical the grammar they use the punctuation the uses of it are not the same as they are now not the same as they were then the use of the colon and the and the semicolon are not the same. So you might want to try another one. The Geneva has the simplest punctuation of all the Bible translations. The Geneva Bible had eight translators. Eight. The King James Bible had 47, and it went up to 54. The New American Standard Bible had well over 100. Too many cooks spoil the stew. Uh, no doubt about that. But yeah, I would ask you to do that. I want I want you to tell me it's got to be there. I know I've found it myself. I've typed in in the website in the bar at the top to do a search on it, and I was surprised how many websites I found about it. 
and I don't remember what words I typed in. Can I tell you? Can I, can we say if to try that for a week, and if you can't find it, to come back next week and see if Brent will tell you? Yeah, come back next week, and please, I'm asking. I'm glad you brought this up this way. This is an opportunity for everybody listening. Come back next week and tell me what you found. I want to. I want people to learn, and the only way to learn, you say, Brent, you're you're treating me like a child. Uh, exactly. And why am I doing that? Because people did that to me all my life, and it helped me a lot. Why? Mm-hmm. Because I, because a student, I don't care how old you are, the Bible says come as a little child. I'm not doing it because I think I'm better than you. Uh, I've experienced this for years and years and years. I've sat through hundreds of classes in my life, and I have thousands of hours of lectures. I remember raising my hand and saying, Professor, can you recommend a book? Uh, that would help me. And I, I learned to do that. I, I went from, can you tell me where it is? To, you know, and, and I'd have professors say to me, well, what you need is this. And they tell me some other book that I don't even know about. Why did they do that? Well, because they were treating me like a child and saying, I can't believe you're this ignorant. What you need to know is this. And you get this under your belt then you can graduate to the next thing. But I know this, you got to be able to look it up. It is there. There are a lot of ways to find it. Another way you can find it is go to a concordance and, type, and look for the word copy. Copy or write out. Think of a lot of words. It's, I will tell you it's in the Old Testament. But by engaging okay, writing... Okay, will, will you just tell me if it's Deuteronomy 17 or not? No, I won't. Uh-uh. I want you to tell me. <laughs> I want you to tell me. Please do that for me. It makes me feel good. And I, again, I appreciate you asking the question. But um, I have that with. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Ryan. I was just going to say I have that with Spanish. You know, if somebody tells me the word, I can't. I have a hard time remembering it. But if I write it out, I I, I can always remember it. Right. Now, in our militia class. When I teach classes, I try to engage as many of those four arts of freedom as I can. They listen to me lecture. They listen to Sheriff Dar. They read the reading assignment. And then I encourage them to go to the chat and ask questions and make comments. That way you're, you're writing things out. You're listening. So listening, writing, and then also reading. The only thing that I'm not doing there is speaking, but I used to teach. I'd have people record out loud as they read from the Bible a passage because that's what it helps you. That's what helps you learn how to speak more clearly and speak as you're thinking. There isn't anything else to it, friends. I homeschooled, we homeschooled eight children. And I told them all, I said, look, the only thing I care about is that you learn how to listen good, read good, write clearly, and speak clearly. And we didn't do anything else. Oh, they had different kinds of books they read, different kinds of literature, uh, history books, science books. I didn't care about the content as much as I did. They learned how to read, write, listen, and speak. And when they say liberal education, go to professors in these colleges, these liberal arts colleges, and ask them what the, the liberal arts are, the answers will be all over the lot. They frankly don't know. They equate it with what Rome says it is, humanism, scholasticism. That's not it. The, the biblical definition is the arts of language. Roger, the whistling's up. This is Brent Allen Winters, commonlawyer.com. Thank you for your comments and your ears for a little bit. <laughs> 
Rod, you're back. Uh, you. in, in, interesting show today. A little bit different. Never know what you're going to get on Fridays with us two getting together. And I hope you got something out of it. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow on our regular Saturday edition. If you want to come back and join us, we'd certainly love to have you, especially if you're new. Because today wasn't a great – Fridays is generally not a great question day for the types of stuff we do regularly. Biblical stuff with Brent, no problem. Uh, and the others, too, but generally it's just a little bit different, and we appreciate everybody, uh, you know, being able to partake of Brent Winters because my personal view of this gentleman is I've never met anybody like him, and I think he's a national treasure. So I uh, hope you do, too, and appreciate what he brings us. So uh, we'll be back tomorrow and see you then hopefully otherwise uh if you don't come back have a nice weekend and uh, we'll see you on monday uh, and we're in some very tumultuous tumultuous times uh, there's a couple of things i wanted to mention today we didn't get to probably just as well because they more than likely would have made you sick at your stomach so We'll lay our bodies down, and uh, we will be back manana tomorrow. See you then. Great. Uh, Brent, do you know what these bastard Zionists did? What? Over there in Gaza. You know, they've been persecuting these poor Gazans for, since October, right? Uh-huh. They're forcing them south, forcing them south. They get to the southernmost area, Rafa, down there, and they're killing them there. They had Israel bring in food yesterday, and when all the Gazans went out and lined up for the food, they absolutely mowed them down, killed over 100 of them.